0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. as going to be our launching point. If you do not have a Bible, and I hope you do, please go ahead and grab one of these in the pew Bible in front of you. You can find our text today on page 495. 495. Now, if we introduce a new song, sometimes it's helpful to actually give you the words. So we will get that fixed next week. Apologize for that. It's a good song so hopefully yours is a good time to just listen to the words but we'll we'll get that taken care of for next week. You are a captive audience for a second, so let me go ahead and hold your attention for a moment. Um, We've been studying through the book of Proverbs thematically. So what we've been doing is we recognize that this is a big book. It has many mysteries that we're trying to uncover. There's many times we can come to this book and we can see themes repeated in different places. So what we're doing is that we're taking a thematic approach, looking at various major themes we're finding in the book of Proverbs. And so if you've been with us, if you were here for our first service, and you really enjoyed the idea of the fear of the Lord. Let me bring one of these, a new book to your attention. It's in the bookstall. It's called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. I think you would appreciate it. He walks through scripture and looks particularly at the idea of the fear of the Lord. So, for example, many people today don't like the idea of fear. And so, if this is a new thought to you, there's rich things all over scripture about this. So, I would encourage you to take a copy of this, go, go and read take up and read. Now our bookstall is a ministry of the church to you. And so this book you could find on Amazon probably for eighteen, nineteen bucks, $8 back there. So let me make sure that you are aware of that. You, that may, find, you may find that beneficial. And so as we continue to study God's Word, one of my favorite things are the times when I am reading God's Word personally and studying, and I have new insights for myself. And so if you were here last week, one of the main insights that I had as I was studying our text last week is the fact that wisdom gives us perception. One of the things that wisdom does in the life of the Christian is that wisdom gives us perception, the ability to see things that are happening. Unlike folly, wisdom gives us the ability to see past to see the way that things go. Wisdom gives us the ability to look down the road and say, if I go this way, then this is going to happen. If I go that way, then that's going to happen. So wisdom is a good friend. Wisdom is like a map. It gives us vision and perspective on where things are going. This is reflected in Proverbs chapter chapter two, verse nine. And Proverbs chapter 2, verse 9 says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. So once I have wisdom, I will understand all of these things. So wisdom gives us perception to see the past in life. One of the other things that wisdom does too, and one of the other ways to think about wisdom, wisdom itself is a path. Wisdom gives me perception, but I also travel the path to wisdom. And I think we see this all over the book of Proverbs. Let me draw your attention to one place. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, you see the language of seeking of searching. We are on a path to wisdom. Proverbs 2, 1-9 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as the hidden treasure. See that language? If you seek it, if you search it, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And so there are times in which we look at wisdom and it gives us perception into life. But also wisdom, the the pursuit of wisdom is like a path. It is something that we are walking towards, something that we are pursuing. And, And the picture of this would be if you're trying to find your way through the woods, sometimes it's helpful to first find a good mountaintop, a good perspective to see everything that is happening around us. I think as we come to the book of Proverbs, one of the things that we see is that Solomon lays out for us several characteristics For us as Christians and for his original audience, of a path to wisdom. And with that, let me invite you to stand, grab your copy of God's word, and please stand with me as we read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The reason that we stand is we recognize the authority of God's word has the same authority as if Christ himself were standing here speaking to us this morning. So, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For a length of days and years of life and peace, they will be added to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine my son do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights this is God's word may he write his eternal truths upon our hearts you may be seated Now Proverbs chapter three is a little bit different from last week. Last week when we came to the book of Proverbs, we saw this conversation between, um, as we saw this picture of lady wisdom, Standing in a marketplace and calling out to people. Last week was more narrative. We were seeing this event that was happening. But this morning, we're in a different type of communication, a different type of speech. And Proverbs chapter 3 gives us the most common type of communication in the book of Proverbs. And what that is, is that in Proverbs chapter 3, we see a conversation between a father and a son. Now remember, the book of Proverbs is written within the context of the king of Israel. What was happening is that Solomon as a king was writing instruction for his son who would one day be king and one day reign over all of the nation. What's the most important thing for a king? Are you wise? But also, Solomon is giving an example of how a father instructs his son. So you would imagine that this not only came to Solomon and to his son, but these words came out to all fathers in the nation of Israel, particularly among the leadership. This is how we instruct our sons in leadership and in growing, and not only just sons, but the entire family. This is for all of the household of Israel, and now for the household of God. And so for us as God's people today, we should have a particular interest in what's going on here, because we know that Scripture commands us to also be people who pursue wisdom. We're supposed to be people who walk wisely in the world today. As Christians, that's not something we put on the back burner, and so Solomon has things to say to us this morning as well. So I think if you go through Proverbs chapter 1 through 9, I think you're going to see various traits, like I've already said, that define the path to wisdom. If I was to think about my life and where I am going, if I wanted to pursue wisdom, What does this path look like? What are the things that I should expect on the path? What are the things that I should be doing as I am pursuing this path? Now, I think that these ideas that I'm giving you this morning are all over the book of Proverbs, chapter 1 through 9, but they come particularly into this place with a high heat signature right here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I gave you a piece of paper if you want to pull that out for a second. And what I tried to do is I went through the first nine chapters and also later and I just laid out for you different examples of where these ideas come up. So I'm going to refer to this a few times but if in your own study you want to keep going this week, take this with you and go see where else these ideas pop up. So I think Solomon has a clear picture for us and he wants us to see the path to wisdom. And here's the main idea for this morning for you. The main idea is that if we are going to be wise We must travel the path that leads to wisdom. If we are going to be wise, we must travel the path that leads to wisdom. And I hope that this morning, as we look at God's word, if you think about your own life, ask yourself the question, am I on a path that leads to wisdom? Do I even like this path? Does my life, if I look at Proverbs and I see my own life, do I see that I'm headed in a direction, the things in my life that are going to help me gain wisdom? For the first point this morning, I think the first thing, the first trait that defines the path to wisdom that we see in our text is trust in God. The first trait that defines the path to wisdom is trust in God. And if you're taking notes, you can write that down there for you. So again, Proverbs chapter 1, verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 is this direct address of a father to a son. Just look down your text at verse 1. My Son. (laughs) It's a direct address. It's father to son. He's addressing his son. My son. If you look at this handout I gave you, I actually went through and I recorded all of the explicit father son addresses on the back for you. This is something that appears all over the book of Proverbs. Now, these father-son addresses have a few general characteristics that you can find in all of them. The first thing that you see is a direct address. Very clearly, Solomon, the author says, my son. Second, there's usually a call, a summons. And what's going on here? Solomon is saying, embrace wisdom there is a call to pursue wisdom to grab wisdom now he'll throw various synonyms out there he'll say embrace knowledge gain insight but there is this call to the son to pursue wisdom or he also talks about this pursuit in terms of things to avoid stay away from foolish companions stay away from the adulteress, as we'll see later Now this command, this call to pursue wisdom can show up either positively or negatively. What do I mean by that? Either it's presented as a positive thing, pursue this, or it's presented as negatively. Do not do that. So either pursue wisdom or do not neglect wisdom. Pursue teaching, do not neglect. Same idea, either positively or negatively. And the third thing that we see is we see some sort of justification. We see a reason. Why should I pursue wisdom? There's usually some great reward that's handed out for us. So in these sections, you'll see, as if, if you study Proverbs chapter 1-9, through nine, you'll see a direct address, my son, right? And then you see a call, come to wisdom, come be wise. And then you see some reason for it, either positively or negatively. This also shows up, there's a few of these father-son addresses are in if-then. If you do this, then this will happen. Now, as I was studying this text, I counted 14 times that Solomon addresses his son and says, my son. And there are many times when he's honestly just changing the word and idea. It's almost like every time he grabs his son and shakes him by the shoulders and says, my son, are you listening to me? Is that instructive? Maybe this morning some son's got a bit of a shaking around this morning. Maybe we all need that once in a while. But it's important to note the repetition. Repetition. <laughs> My son. He doesn't say it once and walk away, right? He comes back to it again and again and again, revisiting the same ideas. Friends, if we want to be wise, if we want to teach others in wisdom, please do not be prepared for a very quick one-off. That's not going to leave the lasting impression that we often need when we're pursuing wisdom. My son. Maybe you need to keep shaking your sons around if you're trying to get a message into them this morning, but not too violently, because that could be bad. But So in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, we see uh, two sets of these charges and justification. So look at verse 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching. That's the charge. But let your heart keep my commandments. For, what's the reason? What's justification? For length of days and years of life, peace will be given to you. Pursue this because you'll get life. 3 through 4 do the same thing as well. It's, here's the charge. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Justification. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Pursue this. Pursue these things. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Why? Because you'll find good success in things to come. And then verse 5 does a bit of a transition you see there's a pattern that he's establishing in verses one through two and then three through four. And then in verse five, he goes into an extended charge. So he breaks this pattern a little bit. There's also another reason why he breaks this pattern. If you look at all of the addresses of father to son, this is the most God-oriented, the most vertical. Look at verse five. Trust in the Lord. It's no longer pursue wisdom, It's this new commandment, trust in the Lord. If you go through all these addresses, he's he's often saying, pursue wisdom, gain insight, don't do this, do that, be wise. And this one is vertical, trust in the Lord. Now we've said this before, but let me say it again. True wisdom is ultimately vertically oriented. If I am going to be wise, it is going to come from my relationship with God. Now he says in verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And here we're going to see, as we look at these, eight, these four verses, verses 5 through 8, we're going to see that the path to wisdom is characterized by a wholehearted, unrelenting reliance upon God. It is an unrelenting pursuit, embrace, trust in God. We're going to see this in a few ways as we walk through these verses. So look at verse 5 real quick. It's a simple command, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He's In trust, Solomon is speaking to the fact that it's the idea of reliance, dependence, where am I going to in life? And then see how he sets up another parallel idea. In line 2 he says, well first he says, trust in the Lord Then he says, do not lean on your own understanding. And here's one of these points where we see that Proverbs likes to place two ideas together in order to give us a fuller picture of what it would stand by its own. Because if you just heard trust in the Lord, you may not understand exactly what he's getting at. He says, trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. What's going on in these two ideas? I think Solomon's forcing us to ask the question. When I think about my life, who do I trust? But then particularly with my knowledge, where do I go in life to find stability? Where do I look for for certainty, for grounding? Where do I go for security? So in your own life, if you're trying to seek wisdom in a situation, where do you go to? Whose counsel do you seek? What gives you stability? When do you feel safe again? Who do you trust? Who do you lean on? I think all of us know what it's like to be unexpectedly caught off guard. Like you're walking, all of a sudden you lose your balance. What do we often do? Grab something, right? It's a reflex. You think about your own life. What do your spiritual reflexes show you? So if you're walking through life and you find yourself in a new challenge or a new circumstance, where do you find your heart unexpectedly going? Is it people? Is it money? Is it things that you think can give you some level of security? Or is it God? Also, the idea of trust has a very strong practical component because trust assumes some sort of reliance. Let me give you an example. Let me ask the question Do I trust that this podium can hold me? I'm doing it right now. But there are two ways I could do this. I could look at the podium, I could study it. It's a pretty sturdy one, so I don't have any problems. I could do physics, I can look at the mass to how much support it could lay. I failed physics, so you actually don't want me doing physics at all at this church. It would not go well. It was, well, I worked so hard for that class, but I failed. But I could say, I could come to you and say, I looked at the podium, I looked at myself, I looked at the angles, and I have a 15-page report that says that I trust this podium can hold me. Or I could just, I could do it. I think in the Christian life, we have often find ourselves in circumstances where it's easier to communicate a demonstration of trust than actual trust. It's easy to, to communicate, hey, I trust the Lord, rather than actually demonstrating that we trust him. Let me an example of this. So if I think about your life, I know we're a very theologically minded church. I'm a Calvinist, superlapsarian, God's sovereignty, predestination. These are all doctrines that we love, right? But even as we talk to people, does this translate into trust? Who's more trusting? Who, who gives you more confidence that they trust the Lord? The... Th- seminary graduate, 20-page paper on God's sovereignty, or the single mother who's a widow who just lost her husband, and you've talked to her, and she is clinging on to Christ with all that she can. So I'm not saying theology isn't important, but theology is always lived. And sometimes we can even fool ourselves into saying a good doctrinal statement is trust. But trust is demonstrated. So when everything comes, who do you trust? Do you trust in the Lord? And verse 6 continues to build upon this idea of trust by put, giving us a command with a future conditional action. So here's the command. In all your ways acknowledge him. Once you do this, he will take you into straight paths. Again, we're talking about the path of wisdom, and the idea shows up here in two ways. Verse 6, ways begins at the, at the beginning. In all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. Now, many of you guys probably know this verse. It's this one of the first Bible verses I memorized. But it's important to recognize that the word for acknowledge is actually a little weak for the idea. Because the word underneath there is one we've already seen before. It's the word yada. It's the word for an intimate... Knowing an intimate knowledge of the Lord. So what he's saying here is as you're walking in life, do you walk with an intimate knowledge, an ongoing relationship of trust with the Lord? You know, if I want to walk the path of wisdom, God is more than happy to be my companion. I, I believe that Scripture gives us full confidence that if I walk every day with an intimate knowledge of the Lord... I can trust that whatever happens, the Lord is leading me on a straight path according to his counsel. I'm walking with that knowledge, the abiding knowledge with God. Wherever I go, in God's mind, my path is straight. Now, we know in scripture, that path is for our good, for his glory, not always our comfort and happiness, right? Think about that. Do you believe that? If I walk with God in intimate knowledge that I know that he will guide me. Problem this there is that that first component is a lot harder than we like to think, isn't it? Where do we fail? Walking with that intimate knowledge of God. You see, God is more than happy to be our companion in life if we let him. How many times do we head off into a path that seems wise to us and leave God behind us because we think we have it figured out? Trust in the Lord and let him lead you into wisdom. Question for reflection. Do I have an intimate, abiding knowledge of the Lord? Verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Verse seven is honestly one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Be not wise in your own eyes. You know what this means, friends? Because of the sin nature, if if I see sin as prideful rebellion against God, then I need to recognize that I must be completely suspicious of basically anything that I believe or desire in a circumstance. How am I being wise in my own eyes? Just start your day by yourself and see where it goes. No word, no prayer. If I am not constantly checking my thoughts, my emotions, my desires against Scripture, friends, what does that actually reveal about my understanding of sin? If we, treat, if we really believed in total depravity, that because of sin, my heart is wickedly bent away from the Lord, Friends, how does that translate into how I'm thinking through what's going on in my mind? Even if I come to God's word, if his spirit is not consciously submitting my heart to that word, friends, I am just one step away from being a Pharisee. Pharisees, God's word without God's spirit. Friends, we all need to have our eyes checked, whatever comes into our minds, submitted to scripture. There needs to be a filter, not with what I want, but what God's word wants if we're going to pursue Wisdom. So if I, am not, if I do not recognize that pleasing God requires a daily crucifixion, a driving a stake through what I want most, then do I actually believe that I'm a sinner? Or do I think that God is actually completely fine with me? Just think about how you deal with sin in your life. What does that communicate to God and to the watching world about the depths of sin still in you? Are you mostly done? Friends, not so. And verse 7 continues. Be not wise in your own eyes, but then an idea we've seen before. Fear the Lord. Go back to the beginning. How do I fight against being wise in my own eyes? Fear the Lord. Let the Lord be your standard for what's true. Constantly recalibrating my life to God's presence, to God's power, to what God has said to me. Friends, that is how we fight against the temptation to be wise in our own eyes. And that is how we grow in trust in the Lord. Friends, the pursuit of wisdom and the path to wisdom are both fundamentally God-centered. If I want to be wise, it starts with a genuine trust in the Lord and intimate knowledge of Him and then using God's nature and character to then guide my standard for what I see in the world, not my own. And as I constantly do that, I think you are on the path that leads to wisdom. Now, I don't have time to say it, but I hope that the application is very clear. You have to be reading your Bibles. If you've been hanging around me long enough and that did not spark you to read your Bibles, I just don't know what to do with you anymore. So enter application about read your Bibles in a clever way, and there you go. You're not going to know God's word or God's character without God's word, so read your Bibles. That's point one. Trust in God. Trust in the Lord. Point two, what else do you think should characterize this path to wisdom? Life in community. Life in community. And for this point, after you write that down, let me direct your attention back to the top of our chapter. Now, I'm going to make an implicit point explicit. I'm going to make it obvious. Solomon's son is not learning about wisdom in isolation. He's not learning about it alone. He's not learning about wisdom from God directly or unmediated, without someone in the way. God has placed divinely authorized voices in the life of Solomon's son so that he may grow in wisdom. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching." There is a community around Solomon's son. And the same thing is for us, right? All of us have divinely authorized voices in our lives that lead to wisdom. Let me just take a second and talk about the family. You know, if you're alive today, you have a a family somewhere. Family is the beginning of civilization. Without the family, there would not be any civilization. It's the first institution appointed by God for human fruitfulness and for blessing. That's why all attacks upon the family ultimately lead to a destruction of civilization. Case in point, America. There you go. Every attack upon the family leads to destruction. Because the family is the the, the nucleus. It's, It's the core of every human relationship. And God uses these relationships to speak into our lives in ways that are important for us. So God created families to be the most important institutions for training image bearers, men and wisdom, men and women in wisdom. In the family, every child has everything that they need in a loving father and a loving mother to grow in wisdom and to learn wisdom. So if you are a parent, one of your main responsibilities is to teach your kids wisdom, You are there in their lives to teach them what it means to be wise, how to fear the Lord, how to embrace wisdom. And you are going to be judged for that fact and how well you do. And also for kids, congratulations. You guys have built-in wisdom providers into your life. You may not like it all the time, but your parents are God's gift to you. God chose your parents for you. And that was not a mistake. I think, sadly, one of the, the saddest things in our culture today is that many kids and youth do not look as, at their parents as examples of what it means to be a mature man and woman. I was reading a book recently, Irreversible Damage, that's talking about the transgender craze. And one of the comments that this girl made who was considering these things, she made, made the comment that, you know, when I think of a grown woman, I think of Kim Kardashian, not my mom. Friends, that's wrong. Our parents are the example of where we are going in life. And we need to make sure that our kids remember that. Now, for some of you, the idea of a father or a mother leading you into wisdom actually brings a lot of pain. Or maybe you're laughing just to help with the pain. Because sometimes it is very difficult to think about the fact of your parents as people who instructed you in wisdom. And that's why we have said that the path to wisdom is by life in community. Because where our earthly families fail us, God has provided a spiritual family in the church for us to pursue wisdom together. The path to wisdom is lived in community. As a church members speak God's word into one, not in one another's lives and serve as ambassadors of wisdom. Friends, if we're church members, let us be mindful of speaking God's word into each other's lives. Let me show you how I think Solomon is proving all these points. Look back at verse 1. Now, let me make something that's also implicit, explicit. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching. Interesting, isn't it? He's no longer saying wisdom. He is saying my teaching. Solomon is a man of wisdom. He has such a close affinity to God's word that he can interchangeably swap, embrace wisdom that comes from God as well as embrace my commandment. He can embrace God's wisdom as well as his own wisdom because Solomon has reached a point right now in his life where he can stand as an honest, assess- as an honest example and an honest vessel on in wisdom in the life of his children right now solomon is a picture of wisdom to his children and i think one of the ways that we see this look at verse one you see that word for teaching you know what the word is underneath that torah it's law it's very fascinating because solomon isn't referring to the law but he's referring to his own teaching as a law which makes me think that what Solomon is doing is that he's using a word that would have intentionally been used in that mind to refer to the Old Testament law, the first five books, to refer to his own teaching. I think, for example, that Solomon is doing, what he's, he's trying to communicate his depth of knowledge of God's word. By using Torah, he's saying you can go to God's law or you can go to my law, my teaching, and both of them will lead you on the path that, we, that leads to life. And, and even Solomon is actually using phraseology from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen 18 reads as such. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart, and in your soul you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Where does Moses say that God's people should keep his law? In their hearts, What does Solomon say in verse 3? Keep my teaching, my law in your hearts. He's basically saying that his sons can either look at God's word or they can look at his life and then have confidence that both of these things are avenues of God's moral law and teaching in the life of his kids. Here's a second point for you. I think it's Solomon's hinting at his own knowledge of wisdom by what he does in verse 3. So again, verse 1 and verse 3 are both charges right after one another. He goes from, Do not forget my teaching, and then he goes, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love, do you know where that comes from? Tased, God's covenant love. Solomon goes straight to the nature of God embrace God's nature. Embrace the things that defines God's covenant relationship with his people. And it comes from Exodus 34, 6. He says, in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friend Solomon here is doing something risky. He is basically putting his own life in teaching and using that in parallel and in in. Synonymously, in that way. He's using his own life synonymously with God's word and character. It's like he's trying to support a giant beam. And on one side he lifts up God's law, and on the one side he lifts up his own character. And he is able to stand the scrutiny and the weight of that. What I think this points us to, Solomon's life is an example for his son of what it means to be wise. And so in community, he's not only reading God's word, but he's watching God's people walk in wisdom. And friends, I hope that this point convicts you. If you're a parent, I think the same thing should apply to you. If you are a parent, does your life give as an example to your kids an embodiment of God's law? Look back at verse one. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments How would that bode well for your kids if they did that to your commandments or to some of your habits? Friends, are you an example of godliness to your kids? Can God look to you as an example of God's nature and law? You know, it's Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day. Fathers, may we lead the example of being wise and instructing our kids in wisdom. So today, let me challenge you to something maybe dangerous. I'm doing in front of your kids on purpose so that they can do this and also your spouse. Why don't you today go up to your parents, on, go up to your wife and kids on Father's Day and ask them, am I an example of wisdom in the home? Am I an example of godliness in the home? And then do this. Walk through the fruit of the Spirit because it's a good place to start. You know, am I an example of love to you? Am I an example of peace, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit? And then now kids... You know, now you know. I mean, I was thinking about the raspberries. You have a few people coming after you this morning. So, but kids, go to your parents. Fathers, we should be humble enough with our kids that we come before them and honestly lay before them just our lives and the fact that we are still men that need to grow in humility and in godliness. And so sometimes I wonder if our kids are frustrated, not because that we have problems, because that's true, but we're just not humble enough to submit and actually to ask for forgiveness. So fathers, today you really don't need a giant stake and a TV cruise out. Why don't you continue to grow in holiness by asking your kids about how you can continue to grow in wisdom? And friends, for all of us, as as Harbin's Community Baptist Church, let's be a community That of men, women, children who are all asking each other and helping each other grow in wisdom. I know that there are many great examples in this room of wisdom and godliness. Friends, for those of us who are younger, they are a gift to us. But let us pursue wisdom and the path of wisdom together in community. Here's my third point for you. I think the third thing that we see, if we wanted to know the path that leads to wisdom, it needs to be defined by submission to discipline. Submission to discipline. Now, verses 9 through 10 give us two contrasting examples, actually, of paths that we may see in life. Verses 9 through 10 is a common tithing verse where we talk about honoring the Lord with our, with our wealth. What does this point to? For many of us, the Lord may bless us honorably and greatly with wealth. And so, for that, we need to ask how are we wise with our money? But then on the other side, there are some times when things go well with wealth. On the other side, there are times when things do not go well. And we find ourselves under discipline. Verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a a father, the son, in whom he delights. So I think if we think about the life of, that leads to wisdom, the path that leads to wisdom. We need to think about how we have a responsibility to submit to discipline, to submit to the Lord's discipline. Now, the, I, the word discipline is actually a word we've seen before in the book of Proverbs. It comes from, in Proverbs chapter 1, he, and it's the word musar. We talked about that there, instruction. And in chapter 1, we saw how how discipline, instruction, this word musar, it talks about a a willing submission, a going under the Lord's training in our lives, putting ourselves like a child under the Lord's instruction. I think the point he's trying to make here is that the path to wisdom is characterized by a willful submission to the Lord's instruction and discipline in our lives. If I'm going to be wise, I must travel a path where I submit to the Lord's discipline. Now, when many of you guys think of discipline, you probably think about it mostly in a negative fashion. Even as I was writing this, all I can think about is the wooden spoon that my mom chased around with when I was in church. But for many of us, it's discipline, it's that hard reproof, that even painful reproof that comes from bad actions. But discipline has both a positive and a negative component. Positively, if you are a Christian, you are a disciple, Right? And so positively, we submit to discipline by submitting to Christ's teaching. Positively, the Lord instructs us in the way that we should go. So if you are a Christian, you are under discipline, positively, being taught by Christ through his word in the way that you should go. And then negatively, which most of us know, there is corrective discipline. And there are times when the Lord has to bring circumstances and challenges into our life or that we may know what it is to be wise Now we don't naturally like the negative side of the Lord's discipline, but if we truly are God's children, we must be willing to open ourselves up to the Lord's discipline however he sees fit. We need to submit ourselves to however the Lord in his wisdom wants to make us wise. We must submit to it. Now I think that the idea of discipline shows up in two main ways in the book of Proverbs. And both of them are tied to the main idea of discipline we were just talking about. First, discipline often shows up in Proverbs within the context of personal self-control. Discipline here refers to self-mastery, self-regulation, according to wisdom. This is Proverbs 6:23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. I stumbled upon this verse when I was studying and I absolutely love it. What is he saying? The path that leads to life is a path of discipline where the reproofs of discipline come and straighten me, keep me on the path. And one of the ways I do that as I walk and I see discipline coming at me from the Lord, I order myself in the way that I need to go. If I am walking the path of wisdom, I know what stands at the end. Life communion with God, perspective. I want to stay on this path, and so I am willing to do what it takes to keep myself there and to fight against all the different ways that the world and the flesh and the devil want to keep me away from that, keep me off the path. And so if we are going to be wise, it does require a stewardship and control of all of our faculties, our mind, our thoughts, our attentions. And also all of our abilities. We need to control ourselves to lead ourselves in a way that is going to bring us to life. Self-control, self-mastery, discipline. Pursuing what we know leads to life and leading ourselves there. That's easier said than done today, isn't it? You know, in the future, people are pointing to the fact that because of technology, one of the greatest battles for it in discipline is going to be the battle for your attention. Basically, who just controls what you're doing with your time? The world knows that it can profit off of what you're paying attention to. So through your phone, through TV, through advertisement, people are literally trying to distract you. They're trying to profit off of your attention. But what you pay attention to will inform what you believe, what you do, how you live, and ultimately what path you travel. I recently read a quote from a productivity book, and he basically said that there are only going to be two type of people in the world today. People who have control of their attention, and people whose con- attention is controlled for them by others. Now that came from a secular book. I was reading through it, someone recommended it, but I think there's an interesting point there. What, who is actually in control of what you are spending your time doing? Is it the next link? Is it the next, now watch this? Is it the, the notification that bings up on your screen? Guys, if we're going to pursue wisdom, we need to pursue what God wants us to pursue. Now, he, he, this dude's just talking about you know, making a lot of money and being productive, but as Christians, I think that we know that so much more is at stake for us. In Proverbs earlier, we read, watch the path of your feet. Watch literally what steps you are taking moment by moment. Because, friends, the life of a Christian is a life of discipline and self-control. The world isn't going to lead you into wisdom. The world isn't going to lead you to read your Bible in the morning. The world isn't going to lead you into Christian fellowship, coming to church. The world isn't going to lead you to evangelism. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, you give account for you. And then how much money people make off of your attention is something that you're going to have to wrestle with between, with God. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about a particular sin that pops up within this chapter, and it's the issue of sexual immorality. But it's interesting in this section where Proverbs lays the the weight of the sin, the responsibility for the sin. Where does he put the responsibility in that section? So we're going to spend some time talking about it in a few weeks to come, but let me just point your attention here. At the end of Proverbs chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, here's what it says. For a man's Ways are before the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So, we're going to look at it in a few weeks, looking at the adulteress and how we need to fight against the issue of sexual temptation. But it's interesting where he lays the burden. Why is he dying? Lack of discipline. Lack of control. So why why is he struggling with sexual sin? Why has he fallen into it? It's not because the culture is obsessed with sex and pornography and all these different things. It's actually a problem of every generation. It's not because he has quote and unquote needs that need to be fulfilled. It's not because his desires are too strong and the requirements for purity are too high, as if God is asking something which is unachievable. Here's the main point. You lacked self-control. Solomon looks at the man who ends up in this situation where his life is falling apart, and he says, you knew exactly what God's word required. You knew exactly the nature of the temptation. You knew exactly where it would come from and you did not steward yourself in a way that led you to success. You lacked musar, discipline. That's why you're destroyed. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Friends, without self-control, discipline, musar, we are setting ducks in what the world will do with us. If I am going to be wise, I must discipline myself in order to travel the path of wisdom and not get led into things that lead to folly and death and destruction. Here's a second idea within Proverbs, I think, hits with Musar. And that's really the one that's closer to our text. In Proverbs, the idea of discipline is the idea of suffering and painful reproof. Let's go back to verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord approves him whom he loves as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. And if we go to Hebrews, as we read earlier. Um, the author of Hebrews is basically using this verse to point to suffering in the Christian life. You see, God knows that we need to be disciplined. He knows that we need self-control. But often one of the biggest things that helps us is when God shakes us and he moves us and he pushes us with discipline. Through trials, through suffering, through sickness and loss, God uses these circumstances to discipline us. Now, who here loves suffering? Show of hands. And yet, in God's providence, he often brings into our lives very difficult circumstances in order to help us grow in wisdom even as I look out into this room, I know many of the things that you all are struggling with and the ways that the Lord is bringing painful circumstances into your life. Whether it's the relational strife, financial strife, medical issues. Friends, I, I know just the pain that some of you, even right now, maybe be experiencing. It's the difficulty that the Lord may bring into our lives. And it's, in, it's sometimes tempting in these circumstances to ask the question, is this really necessary? Does it have to go this way? And scripture comforts us by saying that whatever difficulty the Lord brings into our lives, he has a purpose for it. And every event that comes into our life that is marked by suffering comes from the providential hand of a loving father who knows exactly what he's doing and is going to use these things to make us more into the image of his son. It's often the times of the greatest difficulty where the Christian experiences the greatest seasons of change. There's an exercise. Let me challenge you to do it. Walk through your life and draw a line. Like this, if you're going this way in terms of like pain and difficulty, draw, draw your life out in a line. More pain, less pain. Ah, oh, this is good. And then flip it over and say, and draw a line in your life of when you were, felt the closest to the Lord, that you were growing the most. Many people find that those, those two things actually overlap. And when things are the highest, the most difficult, they look back at them as the most sweetest times of the Lord's presence in their lives. Here's a quote from J.I. Packer that I absolutely love. Some of you know it. I don't apologize for using it again, but it's just too good. This is from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He says, We should not be too taken aback when unexpected and, unaccept- and upsetting and discouraging things happen to us now. What do they mean? Simply that God, in his wisdom, means to make something of us which we have not yet attained. And he is dealing with us accordingly. In God's discipline, he has basically, we are not quite where he wants us to be. And that's what he's doing. Perhaps he means to strengthen us in patience, good humor, compassion, humility, or meekness by giving us some extra patience and exercising these graces under especially difficult conditions. Perhaps he has new lessons in self-denial and self-distrust to teach us. Perhaps he has new lessons and perhaps he wishes to break us of complacency, of unreality, or undetected forms of pride and conceit. Perhaps his purpose is simply to draw us closer to himself and conscious communion with him. For it is often the case, as most saints know, that the fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet, and Christian joy is greatest when the cross is the heaviest. Friends, you, you see that when we come to the book of Proverbs that God, what, what Solomon does is that Solomon reminds his son that suffering under discipline is actually a sign of adoption. It's actually, it speaks to something of our identity. That's the point of verse 12. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Why shouldn't we neglect, why shouldn't we begrudge the Lord's discipline is actually a sign that God is our father. Now, if I was at the park and I started just disciplining some random kid, you probably should call the cops on me, right? Because it's not my son. So we may not like the things that God brings into our life, but actually it's a sign of our adoption. Many times the Christian life is filled with trials and difficulty while you look at non-Christians and their, their life is filled with joys, gladness, easy going, no hardship. Guys, let's not envy them. Because it's like a prince who wants to go be an orphan because he wants to play in the mud rather than submit to hard teaching because he's lost sight of the fact that one day he's gonna be a king. Friends, let's not neglect the Lord's discipline. He wants us to be so much greater than ourselves. And using discipline, he often transfers, he transforms into something greater than would be by ourselves. Here's another quote from C.S. Lewis, the Anglican showing up in form this morning, J.I. Packer and C.S. Lewis. He's talking about the role, what an artist does with a painting in the problem of pain. And he says, over a sketch made idly to assume, amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is exactly. Exactly, it's not exactly as he meant it to be. Basically, you know, an artist drawing a quick sketch isn't going to worry too much if it's just for a child. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in difficult fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. Just being wise if the picture was conscience One could imagine a a sentient, a talking picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the 10th time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny, but then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Friends, if God is taking time to shape you, mold you, don't you know where you're going? Friends, let's not despise these things. The path of wisdom is a path of discipline as God uses these things in our life to make us look more like Christ. And they always come from a loving, wise hand of a father who knows what he's doing. So are you willing to submit yourself to the hands of the potter as you are the clay? Because sometimes this painful path is the path that leads to wisdom. Friends, the path which leads to wisdom is a path of discipline. If we are going to be wise, we must follow the road that the Lord has designed for all of us that leads to wisdom. We must trust God. We must live in community. We must learn to submit ourselves to discipline. But at this point, everything that I have just said runs the risk of being terribly unchristian. because there is a temptation to go wrong with everything that I have just said. You could grab this roadmap and say, all right, here's what I need to do. Know the Lord. Trust the Lord. Discipline myself. Live in community. Here are the requirements. Go do this and this is yours. Right? Go claim wisdom. Here's what you got to do. Just go, go, go do it. You can walk away from this and say, here's what I need to do. I will work. It will be mine. Friends, what's the problem with that? Well, there's a few. But first, you have to remember that wisdom is ultimately a gift. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He store up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So that means that you could literally do everything right and you are ultimately dependent upon God to give it to you. Wisdom comes from the Lord. It's not something that we do and earn. It is ultimately a gift. But second, if the path that leads to wisdom is almost like a path of works, do these things? Friends, you're toast. Because you can't do it. Try to know God intimately enough. Try to live in community enough. Try to submit to discipline. Train yourself enough. Friends, do we do these things? We don't, and it's important to note about wisdom is that this path often f- f- travels and feels like the path of the law, which once we try to climb it, it crushes us under its burden. That's why we cannot take proverbs and turn it into another law. They are both very similar. Proverbs in the law, very command-oriented. Do this, and you will obey. Where does the law though lead someone eventually? Where does Proverbs leave someone? I think back to Solomon. Right now he's speaking pretty confidently. Where does his life end? Look at all of Solomon's sons. Where do their lives end? I even think about after the exile, this book must have been very depressing for God's people, particularly in the time of the Romans. Where is their wise king? Who is ruling them now? Nowhere to be found until one day during a Passover feast, a young Jewish boy appeared with wisdom and knowledge far beyond his age, able to challenge the most learned scholar of his time. And like Proverbs three four, Luke two fifty two says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. You see, last week we saw Solomon When he spoke of Lady Wisdom, he was speaking of the Son, Wisdom, the second person of the Trinity who is Wisdom. But then here's another riddle beyond Solomon's comprehension. As Solomon pleaded urgently with his son to embrace Wisdom, one day a son of Solomon would come and he who embodied Wisdom became a man who pursued the path to wisdom. And he did it successfully. Truly, Jesus said in Luke 11.31 that something greater than Solomon is here. The son who is wisdom became Solomon's son and walked the path of wisdom. Perfectly wise, earning life. What did he do? He gave it up on the cross, to redeem fools, just like us. Friends, and then what God did, he took the greatest picture of foolishness and turned it into the greatest picture of wisdom and hope for everyone who believes. Friends, the path to wisdom is ultimately the path that begins where God's wisdom was first put fully on display, and that was at the cross. For you can't pursue this path on your own. You'll drift every time. And the path of wisdom begins with humility and faith at the cross. As we look to Jesus and say, I can't do what it takes to be wise. I can't know you well enough. I can't understand your commandments enough. I can't discipline myself enough. I can't do it. I know you did. Jesus, I need you, who is wisdom, to come and be my wisdom. I don't have much to give, but I need you to take this foolish thing and transform me and make me new. Think back to Jesus' ministry. If Jesus is Solomon's son, let that reframe a common story for you. Remember when Jesus was first calling his disciples? What commandment did he give them? come. Follow me. Friends, today Jesus stands at the head of the path to wisdom. Yes, we will learn to trust the Lord. Yes, we will learn to be in community. Yes, we will learn to submit to discipline. But first, we must go to Jesus. For he stands at the head of the path of wisdom. And as Solomon's son says, come, follow me. And let me lead you on the path that leads to wisdom. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing your grace to foolish, sinful people. Father, even in this room right now, many of us as we think about the path to wisdom, Father, we have often failed, and we know that your son is the one who comes and pursues sinful, foolish people to bring us home. Father, our confidence is only in you who came as the wise son of Solomon and made foolishness wisdom at the cross for us. Father, today, as, as we are thinking about this text, Father, if you are stirring the hearts of your people, and we know you are because your word is faithful, Father, maybe you stir us to consider our own state and our own foolishness. Father, maybe even for the first time, if someone here is wrestling through these things, Father, may you help them to see Christ as their wisdom who is offering for himself to come walk with them on the path that leads to life. And Father, we thank you for all these things. We thank you that you are our wisdom. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen.